Welcome to What I Tell My Patients, a program for oncology nurses focused on the management of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As a follow-up to our recent live symposia at the 2023 Oncology Nursing Society Congress, I met with Dr. Carrie Rogers from The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. To begin, I asked her to provide an overview of what we know about the biology of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So CLL is, of course, a more chronic or slow-growing lymphoid cancer, and the cell of origin is actually B lymphocytes, so it's a cancer of immune system cells. And I always like saying that because a lot of the consequences that patients can experience are actually related to immune dysregulation due to the presence of this abnormal or leukemic immune system cells. And of course, there's a whole like huge spectrum of uh, cancers of B lymphocytes. And so CLL is one of the more slow growing ones. Um, and really, uh, the majority of people I see that are diagnosed with it actually have no symptoms and come to learn that they have it when they have a blood count and they find out that their lymphocyte count is elevated. And then someone does flow cytometry and says, oh, you have CLL. And it can be very alarming to the patients to learn they have a blood cancer, especially when they were feeling perfectly fine and were just going for like a health maintenance exam or like a preoperative CBC or something like that. Over time, I like to think about kind of two categories of problems that the CLL cells can cause for people. One is that more can accumulate in the body, so people will get enlarged lymph nodes or low hemoglobin or platelets because the marrow gets filled with it. Um, of course, the white count can go up, but that's not usually a huge problem for the patients, even when it's very, very high. Um, so it's kind of like the cells can cause problems just by taking up space in the body. And then also since they are living immune system cells, even though they're, you know, cancerous or abnormal, they interact with the immune system and increase the risk for um, severe infections and other types of cancer due to decreased immune surveillance. So that's a long-term consequence that uh, people with CLL live with, regardless of whether or not they've needed treatment. So... Um... You uh, mentioned the fact that most people, when they present, they feel fine. They just get picked up. What exactly are the indications uh, to begin treatment? And how do patients respond? You know, most of them get observed for a while, sometimes for years. How do people respond to that idea? Well, you have a leukemia, but we're not going to treat it right now. Yeah, so I think there's kind of like, you know, like anything, there's a spectrum of responses, but it kind of goes in two categories. One is people that are like in immediately like, oh, I feel fine. Cool. I understand this isn't going to kill me or at least not in the near future. I was asymptomatic. I can appreciate why I don't need treatment, right? Because I feel good and treatment can probably only make me feel worse. And I'm being told that I'm going to live with this long time. And I, you know, we did uh, studies and by we, I mean, not me. This is a couple decades ago randomizing people to treatment when you need it or treatment now just because you have CLL and there was no difference in survival. So once people understand that treatment won't help them live longer, many people are just excited to get back to their life and have to, you know, learn to uh, cope with knowing they have it but are, are kind of happy to not have to do anything. Then there's people that are just really you know, kind of distressed that they know they have a cancer and they know there's treatment, but just uh, have difficulty knowing that they have this and not not doing something actively to treat it. So I think that's kind of like the, the two sides of the spectrum of um, reactions to knowing that they have it. Some people obviously are symptomatic and then get treatment. Um, so over time, 
you know, some of the stuff I was talking about where the cells taking up more space, you can get people that get really big lymph nodes that it becomes obvious they need that treated, or you see their hemoglobin and platelets fall. And um, occasionally, just because their immune system cells that are abnormal, they can release, you know, cytokines and have people feel fatigued and not mild chronic fatigue. This is like too fatigued to go to work or go to golf or like things that people do like regularly for a while or have, you know, weight loss that's unexpected. And mostly if people feel poorly, they're um, very interested in getting treated. Sometimes if they're getting treated because of their blood counts, they can kind of see that on paper and say, yeah, this this doesn't look like the right direction. Um, but it can also be quite alarming to need treatment for people, especially if they've been in observation and they kind of see where they would need it. But it's a whole like shifting gears from like, cool, I just live my life and know I have this to like this. They sometimes catastrophize it or think of it as a devastating event that they would need treatment, especially if they're for years have been used to observation. They kind of think like, oh, my life is over. Treatment's going to be all these side effects. It's going to be horrible. And that's really not the case for the majority of people. Treatment is usually... You know, it's, it's not side effect free, but, you know, it's usually, uh, especially first treatment allows people to work full time or pickleball full time or whatever people like to do. So, um, but the reaction to needing treatment for the first time uh, can be, you know, really tough for people. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other laboratory tests that are done to evaluate patients with CLL? And particularly the issue of high-risk CLL, what that is. Yeah. So like any cancer, it has a spectrum from like really not aggressive to really aggressive. And one way that we can help predict who's going to have a more aggressive CLL, again, even in the aggressive spectrum, it's still a slower-growing cancer. Um, but high-risk CLL usually has a shorter time to needing first treatment, shorter um, remission durations or benefit from treatment. And that can actually limit uh, people's survival with high-risk CLL. Um, luckily, because CLL is in the blood, you can just take blood and do all the tests you want on the cells. So it doesn't require bone marrow biopsies and things like that, which the patients usually appreciate. Um, and the main tests we do are to look for genetic changes in the CLL cells. Um, this isn't like genetic risk for breast cancer where it affects your family members. It's actually changes in the cells, just the cancer cells. Um, and we look at uh, chromosomes. So something called deletion 17P is like a high risk feature. It's loss of part of chromosome 17. Um, that's kind of the high risk finding. They also look for changes in chromosome 11. So deletion 11Q, 12, which is a, actually a, um, an extra copy of chromosome 12 or loss of part of chromosome 13 as important prognostic features. Uh, some are good risk, like uh, 13Q or loss of part of chromosome 13 usually predicts a good risk. Um, and actually any high risk feature puts in the high risk category. So it kind of goes with the highest risk one you have. They also uh, look at the karyotype, which is the spectrum of all the chromosomes. And if people have three or more independent abnormalities just in the chromosomes as a total, that's a high-risk finding. Um, and then so that's kind of the chromosome level. Um, they also can look for mutations, which are gene changes, not chromosome changes. And there's something called TP53 mutation. Um, and that kind of uh, is on the same part of the chromosome that's lost with deletion 17P. It removes a gene or mutates a gene called TP53, which is a tumor suppressor. And that's a very high risk finding. With our modern therapies, probably the highest risk um, category is people with disruption of TP53, either through that deletion 17P or a mutation. Um, and then the last thing's a little hard to understand because it's called mutated, but it's a normal mutation. And that's um, IGHV or immune globulin heavy chain gene variable region. 
And that's a, remember, this is the cancer of B cells. So it's a, a, the B cells as they mature go through a normal process to mutate their immune globulin gene. And that's to use one DNA, you know, blueprint to make antibodies against everything, right? So you got to mutate this. It's an immune globulin or antibody gene. So the mutated is actually the more normal or more mature or better risk. So it's kind of like the opposite of how we normally think about mutations. Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned the fact that this is affecting the immune system. Uh, first of all, some of the autoimmune problems that you see with CLL and also some of the infections that are seen and how people respond to vaccinations. Yeah, so um, I like to explain it to patients as not just uh, worsening the immune system, but actually dysregulating it. So some parts are like abnormally strong and some parts are worse. So um, people living with CLL are at very high risk of something called autoimmune cytopenias, and that's like immune thrombocytopenia or autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Both are antibody responses against either platelets or red blood cells. Um, obviously, people get that without CLL, but in the CLL population, it's between 5 and 20% of patients that experience these. And actually, you know, it can happen even when the CLL doesn't need treatment and the CLL can be doing well and people have a lot more problems from this autoimmune cytopenia than they ever did from their blood cancer, which seems weird. Um, but it leads to, you know, taking high-dose steroids for that, taking other things for that. And sometimes if those things don't work, even treating the CLL because of that, you know, drugs like rituximab can be helpful. Um, but that's actually a very common autoimmune complication of CLL. Um, and then uh, on the other side, the immune system does a less good job of making antibodies, protecting people from infections, um, and actually protecting you from cancer. So we always make sure people get their like skin cancer screenings, colonoscopies, that kind of stuff. Skin cancer is very common. And then on the infection side, we see a lot of uh, people hospitalized with infections, particularly respiratory infections. Even without treatment, the longer people have had CLL, the lower their immune globulin or antibody levels get. Um, and so you'll see people get recurrent infections with low antibody levels, and we can actually offer an IBIG replacement for people that are really impacted by that. I mean, not everyone gets infections, so we wait till someone actually needs that. Um, and because of the issues making antibodies, vaccine responses or antibody vaccine responses are actually pretty poor. So we just had a pandemic which allowed us to have some really good data on how people with CLL do with viruses and then antibody production for vaccines. And uh, the initial mortality rate for CLL uh, patients infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2 was around 30%. And that's globally in multiple series. So that's close to one out of three people that got COVID-19 died of it initially. Blessedly, that is much better now. So we're all very thankful that that's no longer the experience, but that that's different than the general population in that age group. And actually, the uh, vaccine antibody response rates were low too. For people on treatment, it was a couple percent. And people that never had treatment, you know, maybe like at most 50 or 60% of people made antibodies. That's in contrast to 98% of healthy adults who would make antibodies to those mRNA vaccines. So this is, you know, obviously something very important to our CLL patients. We do still recommend vaccines because it does offer T-cell immunity and probably offers some protection even without antibodies. Um, but and, and that's not just the COVID vaccines. That's actually, you know, things like Shingrix, Pneumovax, seasonal influenza vaccination. So we recommend these because they can still help. But the benefit is going to be less than it is for healthy adults. So, you know, it's funny because as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, why do, you know, when you went through the pathophysiology disease, 
why do they get these autoimmune problems? Is there anything been learned about the why it happens? Yeah, so um, there is, especially with autoimmune cytopenias, there's quite a bit of research on this because um, it's actually not that the CLL cells attack the blood cells or make antibodies against the blood cells. They actually induce healthy B cells kind of like bystander B cells to do this. Um, and there is a whole field of like laboratory science that's been looking at this, like do the CLL cells present like antigens or markers from the blood cells, making them attack them, like stuff like that. And there's been some really nice papers on it. Um, so for anyone that wants to do a deep delve on the science, like it's, it's really quite fascinating, but there's no like one specific answer for, oh, it's this and this happens. Um, Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the treatment of CLL. And, you know, it's hard to think of any other area in oncology that's a more spectacular story than what's happened in CLL. I mean, I think you can, you know, a lot, we know a lot of the people uh, that use our programs have not been in oncology very long. And to me, it seems like it's mainly been in the last 10 years or so, roughly, that this revolution has really happened. Can you talk a little bit about how we were approaching CLL 10 years ago? and contrast it to what's going on today. Yeah, so I like to tell everybody that uh, the last 10 years have been developing targeted agents that don't have chemotherapy. The 10 years before that were devoted to chemoimmunotherapy, which is chemotherapy with rituximab or obinutuzumab or an antibody, mostly at that time rituximab. So um, at that time, uh, chemoimmunotherapy with something called FCR, um, which is sudarabine, uh, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab, um, which was uh, appropriate for younger adults, and chemoimmunotherapy is something called bendamustine rituximab, which is suitable for older adults, or chlorambucil too for people who are like really unwell. Um, it is effective. You know, the, both FCR and BR work very well for CLL. Um, outcomes are you know, pretty good. Um, of course, it is a chemotherapy, but as everyone knows, that's not the worst chemotherapy we make, right? So for CLL patients, it might seem, oh, this is really toxic chemotherapy. But of course, if anyone's given regimens like REPOC, uh, you know, hyper-CVAD, or even like things like some of the breast cancer regimens like dose-dense-AC, that's much more intense than what we're talking about here. And, it, you know, chemotherapy was good. The one group where it didn't really work at all was, or well, not like at all, but was really just not very effective was our high-risk patients with that deletion 17P or TP53 mutation. It was really not effective. And we used to recommend those patients take chemotherapy, get in remission, and go to a donor stem cell transplant right away. So that was kind of like the 10 years before the last 10 years. And then the last 10 years have really been the era of targeted agents, which has been an amazing benefit uh, to people living with CLL. So instead of chemotherapy, um, oral targeted agents, inhibitors of a protein called BTK and another one called BCL2. Um, BTK is actually a, a sends a pro-survival signal the cells need. It's in a B-cell receptor signaling pathway. And BCL2 is an anti-cell death protein. So if you block an anti-cell death protein, the cells die. And, and these have made the experience, uh, more taking pills every day that interfere with how the, the CLL cells work or cause them to die rather than getting chemotherapy for a course. Um, and there's different ways these targeted agents are given, but it's really turned CLL and, you know, from something where treatment was like a course of chemotherapy into taking pills. You know, some, you know, the pills have side effects. You don't get anything for free, but they're very different than the experience of, of chemotherapy. Most people live with mild chronic side effects that don't interfere with their daily life greatly. Um, so it's, it's a different scheme. They also work better than chemoimmunotherapy. So in every thing, single setting where it's been studied, 
the targeted agent regimen had better progression-free survival, which is, of course, people alive without their CLL returning in, in every setting um, that it's been compared to chemotherapy, the targeted agents are better. So they're both safer and more effective than chemotherapies for every every group of patients. And I just want to make sure I highlight that for the high-risk patients, this is a total game changer. So for people living with deletion 17P CLL, their outcomes are much closer to the experience of everybody else with it compared to with chemotherapy where they many of them would expect that this would be a life-limiting or fatal condition. So uh, another issue I'm curious about is what people with CLL die of. Or, um, and, you know, we know most of the patients who get CLL are older, but you do see younger patients in their 50s. And so uh, do they die of CLL? Do they die of infection? Do they die of something else and live a normal lifespan? Yeah. So I think this is a moving target with those targeted agents we've had 10 years, right? So I think we're going to find that fewer people die of CLL now than were when we had chemotherapy. Um, but uh, I look forward to seeing how that plays out. Unfortunately, these patients live so long that it takes a long time to learn some of the answers when that um, changes. Um, so, uh, you know, CLL is a spectrum. There are some people that were uh, diagnosed with CLL when I was in high school and have been living with it for like, you know, 20 some years and never needed treatment. So those people mostly die of unrelated things. So, you know, heart attacks, um, had someone die, one of my patients died this year, sadly, in a, a motor vehicle accident. So those things still, still happen to people. We call them competing causes of mortality. Um, so people with low risk CLL, especially those that are older, can expect to die of something else. Um, people who are younger with high risk CLL, people do still die of CLL sometimes because, you know, after a decade or more of treatment, the cells become aggressive, you know, even though we have many very good treatments, including some extremely good investigational ones, you know, that are still in research trials, you know, cell therapies, people still can die of it. It's not that common and not as common as it used to be, but it can happen. And then sometimes the CLL cells can actually break further and become an aggressive lymphoma. So you can get a diffuse large B cell lymphoma along with with CLL, that has a very um, high mortality rate. So you you know people that see people with diffuse patients with diffuse large B cell lymphoma that don't have CLL can those a lot of those people can be cured with chemotherapy, but the rate of that happening in people with CLL who develop these lymphomas is much much lower. So people do die of that. Um, it's about one out of ten patients with CLL might develop that. Um, I think that number is a little high from my personal experience uh, taking care of people with CLL, but that's kind of the standard figure. You know, people die of other cancers. Remember, they're at risk for other cancers, so um, you'll see that happen uh, not infrequently. We don't, hopefully, won't be seeing the like acute leukemias that people get from having gotten chemotherapy, right? So, getting chemotherapy puts you at risk for acute leukemia. Hopefully, as we stop using chemotherapy, we won't see that. Um, but that was that was a cause of death. And then, yeah, you said it, infection is actually a really um, a really important cause of mortality. A lot of people die from infection. I just kind of had said how many, you know, that got COVID-19 at the beginning of the pandemic would expect to die of it. It was about one out of three. And so people die of things like pneumonia, you know, sepsis, um, influenza, and the risk of being hospitalized for those and then developing complications is higher. Um, so I think, you know, risk of death from other cancers and infections is actually really important. That's why we recommend, you know, vaccines for things you can vaccinate against um, because it reduces the risk, even if it's not as much as in healthy adults. So let's talk about some of these new tools you're referring to. Beginning, I think, with the first type that came on board, 
You mentioned the BTK inhibitors, Bruton, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Like the first one, of course, we heard about was ebrutinib. Can you talk about how these agents work and currently what types of BTK inhibitors do we have available? Yeah, that's a, a really hot topic right now. So um, they inhibit a protein called Bruton's tyrosine kinase or BTK, and it's in a cell signaling pathway, a pathway called B-cell receptor signaling that, you know, this is a cancer of B-cells uh, and CLL cells need this to survive. And you'll actually see this class of drugs used in other B-cell cancers like mantle cell lymphoma. Um, but it's, a, it's again, hugely impactful um, for CLL. So they're um, pills that have a once or twice daily administration, depending on which particular one the patient is taking. And they're actually, because they interfere with how the cells work, they don't just kill all the cells quickly like chemotherapies. So they have to be taken or are recommended to be taken indefinitely until either they stop working, meaning the CLL comes back while people are taking it, um, patients develop side effects and have to quit taking it, or occasionally after multiple years, something will change with their life and it doesn't make sense to continue it. We still don't know because we've only had this class of drugs a little over 10 years, including like investigational use, like how long, like if people can quit at like seven or eight years, how that works out for them. We're still learning that. Um, there's three uh, drugs currently FDA approved for CLL. So ibrutinib, which was the first in class one. Acalabrutinib, which was approved second, and then Xanabrutinib, which was approved in the last year. They all work the same. So they bind the BTK protein and inhibit it indefinitely or permanently. And they all bind at the same site. So you can't just switch to another one because one stopped working for someone's CLL. That, that's not going to work out. Um, and they, the major side effects are things like bleeding and bruising, obviously risk of infection that doesn't get better with treatment, that actually gets worse with treatment. You know, if patients say like, oh, I've gotten all these infections, should I treat my CLL? If the CLL is the risk factor, and no, sadly, that just makes things worse. Um, and then, you know, of course, it'll change the blood counts when you start it. It actually causes all the, the lymphocytes or CLL cells to go into the blood, which is neat to see and can be alarming if you don't counsel patients about it. Um, but then the risk, you know, that doctors worry about a lot is things like atrial fibrillation, um, including ibrutinib. There was a rate of sudden cardiac death, probably from ventricular arrhythmias and high blood pressure, hypertension, which can be problematic. And both the newer drugs, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, have a lower rate of atrial fibrillation and, and um, kind of these cardiac side effects. Acalabrutinib has a lower rate of hypertension. Um, so these are safer drugs from a cardiovascular perspective. I do think that the risk is still increased of like something like AFib compared to not taking the drug at all, but it's less than with ibrutinib. Um, so those are the drugs that are currently recommended kind of over ibrutinib because of the improved cardiovascular safety. And then patients, of course, experience things like heartburn, um, you know, muscle cramps, joint pain, acalabrutinib causes headaches, like loose stools, usually not like terrible diarrhea. And so those are things that people tell you they're experiencing. And for some people, they're like, yeah, sure, fine, it's good. And for some people, depending on what their life is like, that can be really important. So, uh, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about at the ONS uh, programs we do is clinical research and how it's done. And particularly the idea, you know, phase one studies where you kind of figure out how to use a drug. Phase two, you start to get an idea what the response rate is, toxicity. But particularly the phase three trials, these big studies that compare it to standard therapy. And I just had this sort of flashback. I, I don't know, uh, this patient who went on one of those phase three original trials and the reason he went on it, he'd heard about ebrutinib and he want, that he couldn't get, you know, they, you couldn't get ebrutinib at that point. It wasn't approved. So the only way you could do it was on trial. 
So we went on one of these phase three trials that randomized against chemotherapy, and it was actually FCR that you mentioned before that's going to be pretty tough. So unfortunately, he got randomized to the FCR, but he stayed with it. He went through it. He had a horrible time. He actually seemed like he maybe got cured. I mean, he did really well with it. Uh, but it really brought back the idea of the randomized study and how shocked I was, and I think everybody was, when you know this powerful chemotherapy, but compared to BTK inhibitors, it was no comparison at all. Any thoughts about how that, you know, those initial trials were received? I feel like a lot of people couldn't even believe it. You know, they even for a while, people continue to use chemotherapy in the community because they, they couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, people still do. And they, you know, really, I think when the targeted agents, both this regimen that we haven't talked about really with venetoclax and obinutuzumab and BTK inhibitors, I mean, that patients are more likely to be alive and without their disease returning. I'm not sure why anyone would use chemotherapy at this point. Um, but yeah, so you're talking about, um, a study through the ECOG, um, you know, a, a cooperative group that randomized young fit patients to FCR, which is our best chemotherapy compared to ibrutinib with the addition of rituximab. Turns out in another study, we learned the rituximab probably doesn't improve the effectiveness at all, but that was the design of the study. To do a randomized phase three, you have to have equipoise, meaning you don't know up front which one is better or else it's unethical to randomize people. So um, the standard one in this is FCR and the ibrutinib containing uh, treatment was the investigational one. In, you know, we've kind of been talking about how long people with CLL live and how well they do. So actually in studies of a first treatment, and this was a, a first treatment study, we don't always see a survival benefit, meaning people in both arms live equally long because people don't die and that's good. So I see some of those and I'm like, cool, nobody, you know, people in both arms continue to live and be well. Um, but actually this study you're talking about had a survival benefit, which we did not expect. I actually expected the ibrutinib would be more effective, but, you know, I'm at an institution where we had it in phase one and two testing too. So, I, you know, I kind of knew what that was like for people. Um, but I, I actually was uh, uh, shocked to see there was a survival benefit, meaning those randomized to receive the ibrutinib uh, arm were more likely to be alive. It was a very small difference, um, but that just goes to show you how important this class of drug is when, you know, there's actually an overall survival survival benefit compared to our best uh, chemoimmunotherapy with FCR. You had another flashback memory of a fellow investigator was on a panel that we were doing. We were talking about first-line therapy. This is, again, while these trials were going on. And I turned to him and said, well, what would you do if you had CLL yourself or if somebody in your family had it? He said, I'd take you brutinib. And that was before the trials even just by, by seeing it in the initial studies, it was really clear that it was really an amazing step forward. I want to get you to talk a little bit about uh, venetoclax, but you mentioned something else I just want to uh, mention to you or get your thoughts on about the fact that nowadays, you know, really there's, it's hard to think of any indication to use chemotherapy, uh, but, you know, there are a lot of sort of, quote, real world studies out there where they go out and they review charts and you know, they find people who are getting uh, first-line chemoimmunotherapy, BR, for example. And, you know, I can see uh, it might be that the physician's not keeping up to date, although it's all over everything you could possibly read. But I think also maybe there are situations where maybe there's a, a financial obstacles to get, the, to get these expensive drugs and maybe have a copay. So one of the things we said at the ONS meeting, and I'm curious whether you would agree with it, is to the nurses, 
you know, if you see a patient who's getting first line treatment for CLL with chemotherapy, like just ask why, mm-hmm. you know, you know, it's just maybe there's a very good reason. But if the reason is that the doc's not, uh, not up to date, maybe there's something that ought to be uh, done about it. Any thoughts about that? And do you think that is a reality that a fair number of people who are getting chemotherapy? And if so, why? Yeah, that is definitely a reality um, that people are still getting chemotherapy. Um, I think the why is is really complex. So um, back when the choice was uh, BTK inhibitors, which are taken indefinitely and have a high, so um, you know probably most most people that work in oncology know this, but infusional treatments like chemotherapy or antibodies get billed through a different part of insurance than oral targeted agents, which go through your commercial like outpatient prescription insurance or Medicare um, Part D. Um, so the patient cost sharing for, which means how much the patient has to pay for the treatment, can be much higher for oral targeted agents that cost over $10,000 a month. So we're talking about well over $100,000 a year. And so um, I know that when people were thinking about one, I don't want to take treatment indefinitely. And they also think like the rest of my life, I'm like, okay, man, but you're going to live 30 years. Maybe like, do you think we won't come up with something in 30 years? that's better than this. Or like, you know, I don't, you know, if people are planning to live six months, then sure, take the pills the rest of your life. But people with a long lifespan, I, I don't like that mindset of, oh, I have to do this for the rest of my life. But people have this impression, oh, I have to take these pills forever and they cost me, you know, thousands of dollars a year. And I think that's a big barrier when we have BTK inhibitors and they'll say, oh, I'll just take chemotherapy. It's done in six months, gets billed to a different part of my insurance. My cost sharing is less. Um, now with venetoclax, which we haven't talked about a lot, but it's a targeted agent given with an antibody called obinutuzumab for one year in the first line setting or two in the second line setting, you're talking about maybe hitting your donut hole for part D twice if you take it across calendar years. And, you know, it is, you know, one year. So it's not this indefinite, oh, this is going to like be a buzzkill forever type of thought. So I don't understand now why those would be it would be an issue still where people would want chemotherapy when you have an option that's more effective is time limited and the cost sharing can be handled differently. I think the other issue is venetoclax. There's a risk of this hyperacute tumor lysis syndrome because it kills all the cells so quickly that people can get sick. If it's given as um, pres- like recommended in the full prescribing information, it's actually quite safe. But that's a giant hassle. You have to do laboratory monitoring two days in a row. You have to have the setup to get your labs back in time to know if people are getting tumor lysis. Some people with a high amount of CLA have to be in the hospital. So I do think that the hassle factor for the venetoclax is a deterrent where people are like, oh, chemotherapy is easier. I'm going to do that. And it's probably easier for the physician and not necessarily for the patient. Um, the one case where people with CLL should get chemotherapy is probably that diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or development of Richter syndrome or another type of cancer. But I don't think there's any reason or many I can think of. Um, the other part that I think, um, you know, I'm uh, fortunate to work at a large cancer center and we have a medication assistance office and they are very good at helping patients with high cost sharing find financial support, you know, manufacturers of programs to help reduce co-pays. There are um, grants from you know, private foundations that help reduce copays. So someone who can't afford a drug that costs them, you know, $5,500 a year because it goes through their donut hole for Part D can apply for assistance. You know, um, it's usually based on income to copay ratio. Um, however, in a lot of offices, it's really hard to find the resources. Patients have a lot of time trouble navigating that themselves, trying to get financial assistance. And so a lot of them are like, oh, this drug's expensive. I don't have $5,000. Or they think they have to pay the whole drug cost, which is you know well over $10,000 a month, which they don't. 
And so they just say like, oh, that chemotherapy is cheaper. I don't want to do this. You know, the office they are going to, you know, isn't, uh, doesn't have the resources to help them apply for financial assistance, which is very real. I know a lot of specialty pharmacies have stepped up now and helped patients apply. Like some of the bigger oncology specialty pharmacies um, help people apply for assistance. But I think the patient cost sharing is, is actually a barrier to using these drugs. And for the fixed duration one, which is venetoclax, just the administrative and very practical um, issues in, in getting labs back can be a huge barrier. But in terms of like patient outcomes, there is like I can think of very few reasons to give uh, chemotherapy these days. There's probably one or two, but they're very unusual circumstances. So for the last few years, we've been in a really interesting situation in terms of first-line therapy and that we have really two choices, BTK inhibitors and venetoclax uh, anti-CD20 that we're going to talk about more in a second. Um, but just a couple more things about BTK inhibitors. Uh, first of all, as you mentioned, at this point, they're being given indefinitely, although, as you say, we'll see uh, what happens in the future. Uh, when you do that globally, assuming you know, kind of a standard risk, uh, standard situation, how long do you see patients being able to stay in remission on the, these agents? Yeah, so um, there's kind of two reasons that people will stop taking a BTK inhibitor, and they're pretty different. One is side effects, and the other is actually um, disease resistance or progression where the CLL comes back. So for the um, across studies with BTK inhibitors, and this is in the first-line setting, at five years, you've got, you know, close to two thirds of the people still alive and with their CLL controlled. So they work a really long time, but you do see people where the CLL comes back. Um, and, uh, actually as a first treatment, the high risk uh, folks do pretty much as well as everybody else. But, um, in people that have received chemotherapy, like in the past, you'll see that the high risk patients actually have a, a, a sooner chance of progressing compared to ones that's people with like deletion 17P CLL. Um, so, you know, this does work for a very long time, but you do get people where the CLL comes back while they're taking a BTK inhibitor. Um, the other thing that, and so, I mean, you do see people, I mean, I have um, some patients who's, who are still getting ibrutinib in clinical trials that have been getting it for like 10 years, eight to 10 years that are still in remission, still tolerating it well. And, you know, uh, things are going well for them. So it can be a very, very long time. Um, the other reason people stop taking it is side effects. Um, there are some people when they start taking it, get like horrible joint inflammation, you know, headaches that they can't control, you know, really intolerable side effects. And then we switch to something else because there's no reason to keep taking something you don't tolerate as a first treatment. Um, you know, you can switch to venetoclax or actually if you started taking ibrutinib, um, you can switch to either a Kala or Xanabrutinib. And we actually did a phase two study. It was a multi-institution, but we had it here. Um, switching to a Calabrutinib for people that didn't tolerate Ibrutinib, and that works for sure. So there's those things. But then as time goes on, you know, the risk of atrial fibrillation increases, the risk of high blood pressure increases. And you don't actually have to stop the drug because someone got AFib. But again, if someone has AFib that's like symptomatic, they're hospitalized for it, they're getting an ablation, or they have hypertension on four drugs that's not going well, Really, it is in their best interest to stop the BTK inhibitor. And we have, we, we have found that people that discontinue early, um, for side effects can plan, or it's about two years before they need a treatment again. And that's people that discontinue in the first two years. Um, people that could discontinue like later, like after five or more years for side effects, we actually don't know how long they'll stay in remission because one, no one's really looked at that yet formally. And two, most of them are still in remission. So we haven't hit that like time when the CLL returns yet. 
So you mentioned the three BTK inhibitors and kind of what I've observed, I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are about this. Of course, we started out with Ibrutinib. People became more and more aware of some of the tolerability issues, including cardiac that you just mentioned. Then a calibrutinib came along. It didn't seem to be any different in terms of efficacy, but seemed definitely less uh, toxicity. Seemed like most people shifted over at that point. The only problem with the calibrutinib at that point was you couldn't take it with a PPI, which was kind of a big practical issue. But then that got solved, and they changed the formulation so they could. Then xanabrutinib came along. It's hard to tell whether it was better tolerated than a cala indirectly, but the fascinating thing about xanabrutinib is they were, for the first time, reporting an advantage in terms of efficacy. Yeah. And I don't know whether everybody buys into that at this point or not. But first question is, do you think many people or at least investigators are starting ibrutinib very often nowadays? And then if you use either a Cala or Xanu, how do you choose between the two? Yeah, so I, I don't think many people are starting ibrutinib um, these days. And actually, the, the NCCN has it as a, a less preferred because of the side effects. Um, before Xanabrutinib, that was the only option that had once daily, um, a Calabrutinib was twice daily dosing. That makes a big difference for like a very select group of people that just can't figure out how to take a pill more than once a day. I think we all know who those uh, people are. Most organized adults can take pills twice a day, but adherence to these matters. So if, you know, that was a big deal. Xanabrutinib actually interestingly has a once daily and twice daily dosing scheme. Um, so I don't think many people are starting ibrutinib. Um, uh, I think most people are doing either Akela or Xanabrutinib. Um, and what you're talking about is there were actually two randomized phase three trials, which we were talking about earlier, kind of what randomized phase three trials are. One called Elevate RR that compared ibrutinib to Akelabrutinib, and that was specifically in high-risk CLL, which is either deletion 17P or 11Q-containing CLL, um, so patients with a, a high-risk feature that had been treated previously. And that actually showed no difference in progression-free survival between ibrutinib and Akelabrutinib. The hazard ratio was exactly one, so if you follow statistics, that's even. Uh, side effects were, of course, different, as we were saying. And then um, they did a study called um, Alpine, which was in uh, people who had taken a treatment for their CLL before but did not have to have a high-risk feature. In fact, they, they didn't have that many 17P patients, uh, you know, that had 17P CLL. And they randomized people to either ibrutinib or xanabrutinib and found that they actually had a superior progression-free survival, meaning uh, people are more likely to be alive and in remission if they were assigned to xanabrutinib. Um, and it's kind of like hotly debated why there might be this difference. Is it really just a better drug with BTK occupancies, better, like it hits the target better? Um, is it more people are able to stay on the drug? They were both open label, meaning the patients and investigators all knew which drug they were getting, um, which, you know, both were. But the results of the Elevate RR, the Calibrutinib were known kind of while Alpine was still going on. So that might have influenced behavior of investigators. Um, you know, more people discontinued Ibrutinib for side effects in the other study. So I, I fully believe that's the like valid result of that study. Um, but I think there's a lot of factors that could have impacted um, why Ibrutinib didn't, uh, wasn't as effective in that study. And if you actually look at the Ibrutinib outcomes in Alpine, which is comparing it to Xanabrutinib, and they did some like fancy statistical comparisons. A lot of people did to try to show this is true. And I, I believe that is true as well. People that got ibrutinib in that study did not do as well in terms of CLL control as people that got ibrutinib across a whole spectrum of other studies. So I think that's, that's true as well. So I don't doubt the results are valid. The only thing I would not say is that you can't really draw the conclusion that xanabrutinib is more effective than a calibrutinib from this. I think that's too many like comparisons. Um, so. 
I actually think that either a calibrutinib or zanabrutinib would be a very appropriate option for patients. Um, because we have more experience with a calibrutinib, we had it in clinical trials. I usually prescribe that because of my personal comfort level, but there is absolutely no reason not to use zanabrutinib, especially if you have someone that wants daily dosing, you know, the referring oncologist you know, recommended it, or actually people that get headaches, the calibrutinib can make that worse. You might want to do xanabrutinib. So um, uh, a calibrutinib looked like had less hypertension than the CLL studies in Xano. So if you have someone with a lot of hypertension, maybe do the acalabrutinib. So there's like these individual small differences, but I actually think both are excellent drugs for patients. Um, and both are kind of like better, like refined versions of good for the individual, if, if that makes some sense. Incidentally, you mentioned headache, and one of the kind of weird things I've heard over the years is, uh, first of all, that caffeine is helpful. I'm curious whether you found that. Also, that it's not a long-standing problem, that it typically goes away. And again, do you see caffeine being helpful? Um, yes, actually. So for the acalabrutinib headaches, um, they do kind of like joint pain inflammation and some of these like other things. They do tend to get better after about four to six months of treatment. So a lot of patients are willing because they're like, oh, I have to take this drug long term. Do I have to get headaches for years? And you're like, actually, no, it'll get better. We just have to get through a few months. And and, uh, yes, yeah, so, um, aspirin, so the drugs inhibit platelet function and can cause bleeding. So there's actually like an aspirin free Excedrin that has caffeine in it, um, that people tend to respond to. Some like to take acetaminophen, um, and coffee. Um, most patients have like their own like thing they find works for their acalabrutinib associated headaches. And actually a good number of them aren't severe enough to need treatment. So if you ask them, they'll tell you, oh yeah, I did get headaches. And then you're like, what did you do for it? They're like, I don't know. I was watching TV. And by the time the next commercial was, my it was gone. <laughs> so like by the time I thought to like get up to go get myself some acetaminophen, the headache was gone. So you also have some that aren't severe enough to actually impact people's functioning enough that they even want to take an over-the-counter drug. You mentioned uh, bleeding. Uh, what kind of manifestations do you typically see of that? And how do you deal with people who have to have surgery or dental procedures? This is an excellent topic because I find that patients really need a lot of education on this because they'll forget about it and then end up getting some kind of surgery while they're taking the medication. So the the drugs, all three of them, acalabrutinib, xanabrutinib, and ibrutinib, uh, seem to have similar rates of bleeding in clinical trials. Ibrutinib might have a little bit more major bleeding, um, but they all have this effect. Some patients get no bleeding or bruising. Some actually have a lot of trouble with it. The most common thing you'll see is actually people will get um, bruising on like their arms, like on the extensor surface of their lower arms or on their shins or people that like to like hammer on stuff in their garage. People with more like uh, talent than I do for that kind of mechanical stuff will say like, oh yeah, I hit myself with a hammer and now I have a giant bruise instead of a little bruise. And so that's really common. And usually if you educate, people don't like the way it looks, but if you educate people on that, they're usually like, okay, cool. Like I understand, accept that. Um, some people actually do get spontaneous bleeding that's um, significant, uh, like gastrointestinal bleeding or things like that. Um, that's very uncommon. Um and then uh, people taking either aspirin with it or anticoagulants, uh, such as a pixaban with it, have a higher risk of bleeding, which makes sense because it's like additive. Um, I have absolutely um, had people taking a pixaban or rivaroxaban with BTK inhibitors. Um, it's fine for the majority of patients. Warfarin did seem to cause a problem in early ibrutinib studies and has been excluded from most clinical trials with BTK inhibitors. So, and plus, warfarin's hardly recommended anyway for for most uh, reasons. People need blood thinners, so I do not use these with warfarin. 
because uh, surgery obviously would increase risk of bleeding, uh, we do tell people to hold the drug for surgery. The prescribing information for the various BTK inhibitors has slightly different um, recommendations between them. Um, usually if someone's going to have brain surgery or something where any bleeding would be of severe consequence, I say to hold the drug seven days because that's the turnover for platelets is seven days before, obviously day of, and then seven days after. For things like a colonoscopy where they might remove a polyp, I usually say three days before, day of, and then if they didn't remove a polyp during the colonoscopy, just start taking it because there's no bleeding risk. If they did, wait the three days. And then like things like skin biopsies, it depends on what they're doing. It's like a big Mohs surgery. You probably just don't want to have all this bleeding and bruising. But if it's like, oh, I just had a punch skin biopsy, like it's probably fine. And when I'm trying to understand the bleeding risk of a surgery, because again, I don't do surgery, right? I usually ask like the person doing the procedure, you know, would you do this when someone was taking aspirin or, or anticoagulation, like regular blood thinners? And I, you know, it's someone like, oh yeah, cataract surgery, we do that on blood thinners. I'm like, cool. Then you don't have to hold the BTK inhibitor. Um, most surgery too can frequently be done on blood thinners if they're like of normal scope. And then you say, cool, you don't have to hold this. Like dental procedures can vary. And so I usually say like, well, whoever's doing the procedure, like, would you hold blood thinners? And if they say yes, then you kind of think how high is the bleeding risk? And um, usually three days is enough. But again, if you're like opening someone's abdomen or doing brain surgery, I usually err on the more conservative. That's really great input. So let's talk about the other alternative. And really the last few years has been really amazing too, because first we had the BTK inhibitors and then venetoclax came along. And, you know, we still are in a situation where those are two different options that are very different in many ways that are being presented to patients. And it was really interesting, too, how the stories I was hearing during COVID about how people were thinking through that choice. But it's hard to think of another situation in oncology. We have two really apparent, appear to be equivalent choices that are so different in terms of what you actually do. So let's talk a little bit about how venetoclax actually works, why you add an anti-CD20, and uh, the practical issues of how it's actually given. Yeah, so venetoclax is another oral targeted agent. So it's a, a pill and it targets a protein called BCL2. And that is actually an anti-cell death protein. So when you block it, the cells die quickly, like within hours. So um, if you think about it, if someone has a white count of 300 and all these lymph nodes and you start killing CLL cells within hours of taking the pills, it can release a bunch of toxins like... Um, uric acid, potassium, you know, people can die from tumor lysis. So um, in order to overcome this, uh, actually it was studied with a five-week dose ramp-up scheme. And if you've never seen the packaging for this, it's really great. Um, I had some from the manufacturer bring me the packaging, obviously without pills in it, so I could take a look when we started prescribing this to see what the patients are getting. It's actually a box with like little wallets for the different dose you take for weeks, for five weeks. So you take like, you know, 20 milligrams for a week, 50 milligrams for a week, 100 milligrams for a week, 200 milligrams for a week, and then get 400, which is the target dose. And they come in little wallets that you like punch out. And it's actually extremely clever packaging. When you do this, though, whenever someone takes the first dose of the medication or the first of an increased dose, like the first dose on 100 milligrams, there's a risk of this tumor lysis syndrome. So that means that people have to come get their electrolytes and stuff uh, checked, take the pill 
get them checked 68 hours later and then 24 hours later. So it requires hanging around all day to get your electrolytes checked. It requires a lab that's going to result those in a reasonable time frame, requires them to come back the next day. So I live in Columbus, Ohio. I have a lot of patients from rural areas that think that Columbus is a big city. I grew up in suburban Chicago, so agree to disagree on that. But perspective is everything. You know, if you live somewhere with one stoplight, this place is huge. Can be two or three hours away from where people live. It is hard then for five weeks in a row to do this, to stay here for like two days. Um, people live in town and work full time, sometimes just sit in our infusion and type away on their laptop and take Zoom meetings while they're waiting for their labs. And that's cool. But like, you know, some people have to have family members drive them here and it can be tough. Um, the uh, other part is if you have a really high amount of, of seal on the body, then people are recommended to stay in the hospital for the first two dose, like in, first dose and dose increase. Um, for like really intensive monitoring. And, you know, I work in a major cancer center. We're all set up to do that. No problem. Everyone knows how to handle that. But if you don't treat people with that much venetoclax and you don't have a hospital that's set up for it, it can be very tricky. Um, so that is a huge hassle factor. You know, if it's done correctly and kind of as outlined in the full prescribing, the risk of TLS is really small or tumor license syndrome. But the hassle factor is very high. And this actually deters a lot of patients from taking this drug. That being said, after people are at the target dose, uh, the major side effect that people tend to experience is uh, diarrhea, which can be like very episodic. Like people say, yeah, once every two weeks I get diarrhea, which is funny um, for some something where you take a drug every day. Um, some people do get diarrhea that limits their ability to take the medication, but mostly it's extremely well tolerated and doesn't have some of the side effects that BTK inhibitors do. Um, so it's like an upfront hassle factor for like a later payoff Um and then originally it was studied as a, a pill that you take just by itself, like indefinitely, like BTK inhibitors. Then they designed these regimens where you add an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody for the first six months of treatment. And in the frontline setting, meaning as a first treatment, that is obinutuzumab, and you actually give three weekly doses to like reduce the, the amount of CLL and make it safer for like the tumor lysis syndrome monitoring, then you give it like for the next six months and then the drugs take, the venetoclax is taken for a year. And then in the, in, as a subsequent treatment, you actually get the venetoclax to target dose and do six months of rituximab with the pill, you know, for two years with Ben for two years. And um, the obinutuzumab three-week visits before you do the five-week escalation visits really adds to patient's burden because that's eight weeks. You have to come here one to two days in a row and that that can be really difficult. Um but the, the anti-CD20 is, is what increases the effectiveness of the venetoclax and what is uh, kind of the thing that allows it to be a time-limited, you know, like one-year treatment rather than an indefinite one. And that idea of time-limited therapy is really dramatic when you contrast it to BTK inhibitors, which is really, at this point, as you said, indefinite. I was also flashing, particularly in the beginning of COVID when everybody was so panicked, I think everybody shifted, you know, was giving first-line therapy with BTK so the patients wouldn't have to come into clinic. Was that what happened at your place? Yeah, so there's a couple a couple important considerations there. Um, one is, yes, BTK inhibitors, if you're doing all telehealth, you know, again, I think I've said the mortality rate from COVID was very high for our patients, and so we did not want them exposed, and most of them did not want to leave their house, and I 
I get that. Now most of them are back out doing things, like luckily. Um, but yeah, you can have the drug shipped to them and then see them by telehealth and get local lab monitoring to start a BTK inhibitor. You cannot do that with Venetoclax. This like TLS monitoring can't be done that way. So there was that, but then actually the anti-CD20 is a bit of an issue. So just looking at COVID-19 data, not only in CLL, but across other cancers, receipt of, or, or having been treated with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, one, made it very difficult to mount a, an antibody response to a vaccine for six months to a year. But two, like the mortality rate from people that got anti-CD20s was extremely high. So it's not something where you leave it out of a curative lymphoma regimen. But if you're talking about CLL patients that already have a high mortality rate, do you really want to give them a drug that you know will make that much higher when you could ship them a BTK inhibitor? Now I'm not avoiding anti-CD20s, but I think the avoidance of that class of drugs, you know, because it kills healthy B cells and you can't make antibody responses for a while, the avoidance of that went, you know, past the time when we were doing exclusively telehealth, like just because of the the risk um, to patients. Um, So I think that also kind of decreased the use of venetoclax because you plan to give it with an anti-CD20 and now you're like, oh, I really don't want to give that class of drugs. Can you talk a little bit more about tumor lysis syndrome, uh, TLS? You know, I know, I think when people first started observing that with venetoclax, they were thinking, well, that's a good sign. The tumor is, you know, dying so fast that you have TLS. But how do you explain, like, to a patient what TLS is and the kind of complications you see with it if it's not managed correctly? Yeah, so um, TLS, of course, can be seen in, in like multiple different cancers, right? So acute leukemia is a really aggressive lymphoma. So you can see it spontaneously, meaning this cells are so proliferative, like in a Burkitt's lymphoma, they just kind of die. You don't see that in indolent um, or slow-growing cancers like CLL. You don't see spontaneous tumor lysis. Also, it can be seen with chemotherapies and some very chemotherapy-sensitive cancers, including things like small cell lung cancer, which is like, you know, not a blood cancer. And you can definitely see it with like Burkitt's or proliferative lymphomas. Um, it had been seen in CLL before with a class of drugs called cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors. So I think everyone, when this happened with venetoclax, is kind of prepared. And it actually seems pretty unique to CLL. So venetoclax is used in some other diseases and doesn't have as much of a risk of this. So what it is, is it's basically the cells get killed off so fast that they release electrolytes, uric acid, and other toxins. I just call them toxins when I'm talking to patients into the blood because I don't think they understand potassium being dangerous in the same way healthcare professionals do. Um, but, you know, you can get life-threatening hyperkalemia, lethal arrhythmias, and death. Um, you can get kidney failure from uric acid or calcium and phosphorus participa- uh, precipitation and need dialysis. People can need dialysis to not die from electrolyte abnormalities. And it can be really dramatic where if you don't do dialysis like hemodialysis within hours, someone can die. With venetoclax, you do sometimes see a little bit of this and you'll just see like the phosphorus or potassium goes up a little bit. And, you know, that's why we monitor people. The majority of times, if you see the potassium go up, you know about it. You can hospitalize them, continue to monitor and give drugs like Caxalate, um, which, you know, depletes uh, potassium from the body or like FOS binders um, so that you can kind of manage this without needing dialysis. You can hold further doses of venetoclax. You can give IV fluids to protect their kidneys and help flush this out. You can give case for um, high uric acid levels. So most of the time it can be managed with medications. Um, I don't think that we've um, had to do dialysis for a venetoclax tumor lysis reaction basically since this kind of ramp up like this has been used and, and certainly not the way it's done now. And then of course, like the lower the tumor burden going in, the lower the risk, right? Because if you have a 
ton of CLL cells in the body. You can kill them and then they'll release like electrolytes and stuff. If you don't have that many CLL cells in the body, even if you kill all of them, you're probably not going to cause a significant problem. So the tumor burden matters quite a bit. So uh, in a second, I'd like to hear your, your experiences with how you process this with these two major decisions with patients. Of course, clinical trial participation, I'm sure, is another option you're always thinking about. But one other concept before we get to that, which is uh, so-called minimal residual disease assays, MRD, which seems to be particularly relevant in patients getting venetoclax. What is this and how is it used? Yeah, so minimal residual disease basically means um, for people who are in remission, can you still detect CLL cells? So they're not for people with like high white counts, they haven't had treatment for CLL because that's not minimal, that's like substantial disease, right? So there, there's two different major assays that are used. The one that um, we had first is using um, peripheral blood immunophenotyping by flow cytometry. So it's a, a, a you can do it on the blood or the bone marrow, but it's a flow cytometry based assay done in the lab that way. Um, there's also um, an assay uh, called uh, Clonoseq, which is the brand name for it. Um, but this is the only one I know that that does this really commercially. You can send either blood or bone marrow. You have to send it before treatment. And then they actually look at the um, gene sequences specific to that CLL from like the immune globulin genes. And then they see if those sequences are still detectable on in the samples after treatment or when, you know, disease is supposed to be lower. Um, and so it uses like a fancy sequencing technique and can be a little more sensitive than the flow-based assays, which use antibodies in a machine with lasers. So there are different techniques to try to say like, hey, even though this person's lymphocyte count might be low and it looks like they're in a really good clinical remission and we don't see any CLL cells in the blood or the bone marrow, are there still a very small amount of CLL cells there? And they can detect one in a 10 to the negative fourth or one in 10 to the negative fifth um, CLL cells. That's like the sensitivity of it. Um, so it is an outstanding um, research tool, particularly because people where you can't detect CLL after treatment um, tend to have a longer remission or time to next treatment. And like I said, people do so well that at five years for first-line treatment, like well over half the people are still alive and in remission. So it might take 15 years to find out in a randomized study if A or B is better, right? So, you know, it takes so long to find out, you know, are these drugs better? Are they worth it? It's kind of like a a proxy or surrogate marker for which is potentially better. So that's how we use it um, in studies or in research studies. Um, and then also you can kind of see like, even though their blood counts are normal, you can kind of tell what's going on with someone's CLL. Um, BTK inhibitors, which are the first uh, kind of targeted agents we're talking about, actually don't eliminate all the CLL very well. So you'll see people whose lymphocyte count is still slightly elevated even after years. That actually is not associated with worse outcomes. It's potentially associated with better outcomes or longer remissions. But the way it works, it just doesn't clear out all the CLL. And that's one reason they're given very long term. The venetoclax drugs, as I was just pointing out with the like tumor lysis syndrome, I like to talk to patients about it as like it is so immediately and massively effective that it kills all the cells really quickly. And you can tell it kills them quickly because we're just talking about killing them with hours and causing tumor lysis syndrome. So you do actually get um, a higher number of patients who early on have this undetectable CLL, which by the way, you can get with chemotherapy, although not as as effectively as with targeted with with venetoclax. And so um people that still have detectable, you know, I just said in the first First treatment setting, it's given with obinutuzumab for one year. So people that still have detectable CLL at a year 
tend to have shorter you know, remissions or times the next treatment compared to people that, that don't have detectable CLL. And there's some like really finer points on that with like the IGHV mutated subgroup and, and, and things like that. But that's kind of the upshot in, in kind of what we're doing with that. And it's an outstanding research tool. But I mean, the bottom line is um, if the patient is MRD negative, uh, they'll be off treatment for, or positive, actually, they're going to be off treatment for quite a while as opposed to BTK where they're going to have to continue treatment. Yes. And, and you know, even if people have detectable MRD, if we did that assay, we still stop treatment because that's the plan. And we don't know that continuing it will make the remission longer. We don't know that. It's being looked at, but we don't actually know that answer. And yes, in any circumstance, it's still years off treatment. Um, if you're MRD negative, it's it's more, but you'd expect years. Remember, at five years, you still have like well over half of the patients in remission and alive. So, you know, you've got over half are still, and that's one year of treatment and four years of, of not doing a treatment. Um, so that's a major benefit. There are, we're talking about subgroups a little like the IGHV mutated patients doing so very well with that treatment. I do want to just highlight that the deletion 17 um, PCLL, um, uh, people with deletion 17 PCLL don't do as well with that um, so with BTK inhibitors, you actually see basically an identical progression for survival, which again is how long people are alive without the CLL coming back um, with deletion 17 PCLL patients and not, right? So it's similar with venetoclax and obinutuzumab. You, you don't uh, actually see the identical outcomes. You actually see a shorter um, remission duration, like substantially shorter with, with the deletion 17P CLL patients. Um, now we didn't talk about like why one might choose one over the other because there's some patient factors that matter. Like for people with abnormal heart rhythms, you really, that are problematic, not like AFib that's controlled on one drug. Like for people with really problematic abnormal heart rhythms, people that need warfarin, you don't want to give them you know, ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, or zanabrutinib. Even if they have a deletion 17P in their CLL, you want to do the venetoclax. It's going to be safer and better for them as a person. Um, people with heart failure, you need fluids for this like tumor lysis syndrome risk strategy if, and impaired renal function makes that a higher risk. So if you have not good kidney function or heart failure, you don't want to take venetoclax because that's not going to go well. So there are reasons like on the patient side, not just preference about duration of treatment that, that make a difference between these regimens. But for people that have deletion 17P CLL, I generally recommend the BTK inhibitor so that they can maximize their kind of benefit to first treatment. Um, but again, if they have reasons they shouldn't take that, it's it's not at all wrong to do venetoclax. They can still expect years of benefit. So I'm curious, you know, you hear a lot about shared decision-making in oncology and allowing the patient to be involved. And this certainly would be a situation where that would be uh, something to really think about with two, you know, for most patients, two very good options to consider I'm curious, you know, one, you're gonna have to, you have a year versus indefinite, but that year you're gonna have to come to the clinic a lot and et cetera, et cetera. The longer term therapy, maybe you have complications. I'm curious if how patients who are presented with both of these options process it. I've heard people say, well, the younger patients want to get it over with and the older patients are already on 10 medicines. Anyway, when you walk into a room, you can predict which way it's going to go. Um, 
Sometimes if I actually know the patient well enough. So if it's a new consult, no. If it's someone that I've seen for multiple years, then I have some idea what their preferences might be. Um, but if it's like a new consult and, you know, people would come for like an opinion on what they should do, you know, people still get some time to decide what treatment they want. It's not like, boom, you have to start next week, right? And most of them feel well, so they get a second opinion on it, which is, an, is a lovely thing. You know, the CLL patients tend to be very educated about their disease. And um, so for people I don't know, I, I, I usually can't predict. And then the first thing they ask me is, what treatment should I get? And I was like, I don't know, we just met. I have questions for you, then I'll help you figure it out. And then if people really can't figure it out, I'm like, we have a clinical trial for you. <laughs> um, so I usually explain both like the BTK inhibitor and the venetoclax venetuzumab and then explain why they may or may not want to participate in a clinical trial. So I make sure they understand their standard options, which are both good, and then why a clinical trial option may or may not be in their best interest, kind of as like a th- assuming they're eligible for clinical trials. Um you know, I think that uh, the way I start is I definitely tell people about both, but sometimes there's like a really obvious reason they'd want one or the other. Like, you know, this person has high risk features. You're going to, you know, I'd recommend the BTK inhibitor and here's why. And most people are very open to that. They're like, hey, you know, you uh, intermediate recidogenetic CLL that has a mutated IGBH, you're probably going to have an outstanding result with this. So most people are pretty responsive to like a recommendation that their CLL might do better with one or the other. And then also you've learned about people. It's very important to figure out what other health conditions people have. So also if you're like, hey, your atrial fibrillation has been the most difficult health thing you've ever had, much worse than your CLL. You've had two ablations and you're miserable whenever it comes back. I don't think we should use BTK inhibitors. People are like, sweet, I'm doing this. So like, after that, you know, um, you kind of gets into like what you prefer. And actually, you know, you're right. Older people are usually like, yeah, I don't need to drive here a lot. Just add this to my pillbox. But some actually are very worried about costs of continuous therapy, um, how it might impact their lifestyle. You know, they have um, friends that have AFib and are worried about that. Um, and then actually I have some younger patients that really wanted one year treatment. We're all sold in it. I want this. I want that. Yeah, I'll do it. Then they get the calendar, even though I explained what it was from like the pharmacist when they're getting education, the pharmacist is like, yeah, they don't want this anymore. They like work full time and just want to take the BTK inhibitor. And I'm like, right on. I'll go back and talk to them for a minute. So you do have, um, preferences either way on that. So I like to joke that uh, talking about CLL is like talking about the Talmud. You know, we've been talking more than an hour now, and I've had 30 questions I wrote down that I had to skip so we could keep going here. So let's just finish with a couple of uh, uh, thoughts about the future and where things might be heading. So first, an obvious question always comes up in oncology when you choose between things is why not combine them? And we are seeing trials that combine venetoclax and BTK what will be seen there? And do you think that's in our future? Uh, yes. So um, we did combine them. We have outstanding results. And again, I we've mostly been focused on picking a first-line treatment. If people have CLL cells that become resistant to one of these drugs, that's a completely separate conversation. So just limiting this to like picking it as a first treatment, we absolutely have combined them. We have a large phase two study here actually combining ibrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab, which is an antibody. It's like a three drug. Um, but there are lots of clinical trials combining ibrutinib with venetoclax. And again, these were started before the newer BTK inhibitors. And there's absolutely studies now we're seeing results with acalabrutinib and venetoclax, xanabrutinib and venetoclax with or without obinutuzumab. It'll be really exciting to see how that plays out. Um, I... We are getting new BCL2 inhibitors, like a newer version of venetoclax that are now in studies. So that's going to be interesting too, to see if that gets combined. The combination is usually give for, given for fixed duration. 
So if you give venetoclax and BTK inhibitors, you get high rates of eliminating all the disease and it's given for like, you know, one to two years in most studies or, or 15 cycles, which is like a little more than a year. So um, that is absolutely something that is usually a fixed duration proposition, meaning it's not indefinite. It avoids the anti-CD20s and the infusions. It doesn't avoid that five weeks of venetoclax ramp up though. Um, there's actually, there's a study called GLOW that compared, um, an ibrutinib and venetoclax combination to that obinutuzumab and clarambucil, which again is not that effective. Um, and this was in older, less fit patients. And it definitely showed that the ibrutinib and venetoclax was more effective, had a better progression free survival. And actually ibrutinib and venetoclax in combination is approved by the EMA in Europe, um, and Health Canada. So in the United States, we do not expect the US FDA to approve that regimen. Um, but we all expect that at some point a regimen of a BTK inhibitor and venetoclax combination will be approved here. And it looks like you could reuse those or use either the two drugs after it because usually quit while you're ahead before the CLL cells are resistant. And that's going to open up a lot of questions about which drug to use when, in what order, and what happens next. So I'm sad to say one final question and then we have to stop. Uh, Later on, we're going to do a program with Dr. Michael Wang from MD Anderson on, you mentioned mantle cell lymphoma. I'm looking forward to that. And one of the things I want to ask him about is another BTK inhibitor that just got approved in mantle cell called pertubrutinib, but it also has fantastic results in CLL. I don't know why it's not already approved in CLL, but uh, can you talk about what pertubrutinib is and where you see it fitting in this uh, picture? Yeah, so um, pertubrutinib, which had a compound name of Loxa 305, is a BTK inhibitor because it hits the same target as the three drugs we've been talking about, but it's actually kind of a totally different class of drugs. So even though it hits the same protein, it binds in a different way and binds and unbinds it. So I want to be clear not to confuse pertubrutinib with the other three because it hits the same protein, but it's not at all the same um, class of drug, really. Um, it is uh, It binds in a different spot than the other drugs and binds and unbinds it like reversibly, the other ones, you know, abrutinib, xanabrutinib, abrutinib bind BTK and permanently inhibit it. So it actually has much fewer side effects. And again, we had it in clinical trials, so I've used quite a bit of it for my patients, um, treated a lot of people with it. And the side effect profile is is better than the others. Um, and it actually works in many cases um, for people whose CLL cells have become resistant to a covalent BTK inhibitor, which is the three we were talking about, or a covalent BTK inhibitor and venetoclax, the progression-free survival median is between 16 and 18 months um, in a, study, a large phase one study called the Bruin study in CLL. So this is an outstanding drug in terms of side effects and in terms of how effective it is in um, patients whose CLLs become resistant to both covalent BTK inhibitors, which again are the three approved ones I've been discussing, and venetoclax. I do want to be careful though, um, just because it's safer does not mean it should be used before those other BTK inhibitors and it can't be used interchangeably with these other BTK inhibitors. It's a completely different concept, but I do think that they are studying it as a first treatment. Um, they're studying it with venetoclax. I do think that it will be an extremely important drug um, for people living with CLL. Um, and I'm really excited. Uh, and, you know, it's approved for mantle cell lymphoma. So in very special circumstances for people without other options, we can prescribe it off-label based on the existing scientific data, meaning, you know, prescribing it for CLL instead of the approved indication, which is mantle cell. This concludes our program. 
special thanks to Dr. Rogers, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for What I Tell My Patients.